Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. Wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. We are very grateful to have former Prime Minister and Distinguished Fellow of the IPA, Tony Abbott, with us for another discussion. Two critical issues uh, to discuss today. That is of Morrison's secret ministries and what it says about the broader handling of COVID around Australia and what we should do about it. And the future of Australia's national defence and security. To begin on our first topic, as we all know by now, based on reports, uh, Scott Morrison as Prime Minister took it upon himself to, in essence, be a second secret minister for five portfolios across health, finance, resources, treasury and home affairs. Uh, Tony, you've recently said in reports in the Australian Financial Review that What Scott Morrison did was inconsistent with the conventions and practices that form an essential part of the system of responsible um, government. So just to begin with, Tony, to set the scene, um, could you elaborate on your observations about the, the, the reservations and problems of what Scott Morrison did? Sure, Dan. And look, uh, I should preface these observations by saying that, uh, it was an unprecedented time, uh, while we'll go on to say many things about the pandemic today and beyond, uh, it, it did strike uh, the whole of our society really out of the blue. Um, a very few of us had been thinking about it. Uh, I'd thought about pandemics when I was health minister, for instance, in the Howard government. Uh, but, uh, but I don't think uh, one in a thousand people had thought about a pandemic in any serious way uh, prior to... Uh, late January, early February and March of 2020. And look, in unprecedented times, uh, people are tempted to do unprecedented things and some of the things they do because it seems like the right thing at the time uh, subsequently look like they shouldn't have been done. And while I can understand Prime Minister Morrison wanting to, as it were, shadow the health portfolio... Uh, particularly given the enormous powers given to the health minister under the Biosecurity Act, uh, it is hard to fathom why it was necessary to shadow also finance, treasury, resources and home affairs, particularly given that some of these later shadows happened 12 months or more into the pandemic and particularly given that none of the later shadows were aware that the Prime Minister was there, in a sense, a co-minister. So, so look, uh, very unusual, uh, very unconventional and uh, hard to see the point of. Um, and, and I don't want to be too harsh on Scott because uh, at times leaders do things which bamboozle their followers. I dare say uh, some people thought uh, that I had rather bamboozle Boozle than when I brought back knighthoods, for instance. But nevertheless, it was uh, it was unusual, it was unconventional, and under all the circumstances, it was wrong. Particularly because 
It wasn't announced and even the ministers other than Greg Hunt didn't know about it. But um, we've had the report from the Solicitor General. Uh, the Solicitor General has made it clear that it was highly unconventional, but it wasn't actually illegal. Mm. You might remember, Dan, that uh, uh, back in 1972, Gough Whitlam and Lance Barnard uh, swore themselves into, I think, 25 portfolios. Lance had 13, uh, Gough had 12 uh, for the first fortnight or so of the Whitlam government before more normal arrangements were entered into, and that was because... Uh, the new government at that time wanted to hit the ground running and start getting things done, like pulling us out of Vietnam and abolishing conscription and so on. So, so look, not illegal, uh, but certainly highly unusual and done in secrecy, uh, deeply unconventional and wrong. And what we need to do is, is look not just at this, uh, frankly, I think we, we know all we need to know about this. We need to look at the whole handling of the pandemic because uh, it seems to me uh, more than ever uh, that the disease itself was serious uh, but much more damaging than the disease itself was the response to it. The economic response in terms of the gargantuan spending uh, that was totally unprecedented outside total war. Um, the lack of democratic accountability, uh, because no Australian parliament has ever, uh, ever debated uh, pandemic policy uh, in the way that it was occasionally debated in the House of Commons, for instance, when lockdowns and what have you were being imposed or extended. And I think it's damaged us spiritually as well. Uh, it's promoted a not just a safety first, but a safety only mindset. I think it's done enormous damage to the work ethic of so many Australians. Uh, the problems we've got in so many areas at the moment, from hospitality to transport, uh, to retailing, uh, getting people to turn up, a continuity of services, um, flights taking off on time, uh, baggage arriving in the right place at the right time, all of this flows from the disruption uh, that the pandemic caused and the frankly unnatural behaviour that was imposed upon us by government. I can remember early on uh, at the time of the first lockdown, uh, government talked about uh, putting, putting the economy into hibernation. Well, we're not bears. We aren't bears. Uh, maybe bears can go to sleep for six months and then come to uh, and act normally, but human beings are not like that. And we were se essentially put in and out of hibernation uh, on numerous occasions over a two-year period. That does damage. It does economic damage. It does cultural damage. It does psychic damage. We need to look at all of this and learn the right lessons because at some point in time, there will be another pandemic. It might be a year. It might be a decade. It might be a century but there will be another one and we need to distill the lessons of this one uh, as part of our duty to the future. We need to distill the lessons of this one 
uh, and give it to future generations for their own benefit. And it was on this podcast, as you reminded me just before, that you first made the call uh, that there should be a Royal Commission into the handling of COVID because I agree that what Morrison did was was unconventional and I think just plain wrong. Mm. But it gets to this much broader issue, as you've identified, of the the lack of transparency and accountability that came with the entire mm. handling of COVID and mostly at the state level. I mean, there's lots of scrutiny, quite rightly, on Scott Morrison, but where's the scrutiny on Daniel Andrews? Where's the scrutiny on the state premiers for what they did? So I think your your assessment's correct, uh, 100%. And, and the Royal Commission, Dan... Uh it has to be a uh, an explore an exploratory uh, royal commission, as opposed to a whitewash royal commission. Uh, you know there are some inquiries which are designed uh, to cover things up. Mm. Um, I think there was one in Victoria uh, here sure there was. Uh, yeah. into yeah. hotel quarantine, yeah. and there are other inquiries that are designed to uh, to elucidate and to educate. And we need an elucidation and education Royal Commission into the totality of our response to the pandemic. Just other one, one other question on this because that's a pretty comprehensive treatment of the of the matter. One of the more curious things of what Morrison did is, so far, what we know is the only time he used his power was not related to the pandemic. It was to get rid of a gas project, mm. the PEP eleven gas project. Uh, in the Sydney Basin at a, at a time when Australia is in the middle of an energy crisis. Um, that, I think, is deeply concerning because it appears to have been done purely for political motives to try and save the seats of some inner city, um, inner city seats in, in Sydney. So that, to me, was a one of the more concerning developments to use that power for what seemed to be political purposes. Did you have any reflections on that particular matter or well, not so much? Well, look, Dan... Uh uh, why shouldn't we know what resources we have? Mm. Whether we decide to exploit them or not is another story. But surely if there, if there are deposits of gas and oil off the coast of New South Wales, let's know about them. Now, uh, I suspect that uh, we are going to be using fossil fuels for a long time to come if we want to maintain our standard of living and if we want to maintain our position as a first world economy, an independent first world economy, mm-hmm. and uh, if we are going to be using fossil fuels, as I think we have no real alternative, let's uh, let's see what resources might exist uh, off the coast of New South Wales. I mean, the Bass Strait has been an important source of mm. wealth and development for Victoria over many, many decades. Um, if the Bass Strait wasn't running down... Um, gas prices in Victoria would probably be rather lower than they are. Uh, maybe there's another Bass Strait uh, somewhere off the coast of New South Wales and why shouldn't we know about it? Mm. No, look, I agree. And I, I would just note that uh, Madeline, uh, Madeline King, who's the Resources Minister, has, I think, made some positive overtures recently, opening up some offshore oil and gas exploration potential. So that's, I think, a positive step in the right direction. But I... I completely share your views that let's see what's out there and if we can take the next step to develop them, then then so much the better. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, you used a critical word there, which was an independent first world power mm-hmm. and, and the key word independent, I think, and that segues nicely into the next topic, which is to do with our national defence and security. And uh, you gave, a, I think, a very important speech to the Henry Jackson Society in London 
uh, recently, and there was an edited extract of that published in The Australian along with a news report. And you talked to, about a range of matters concerning the future of the Western world. Um, and I wanted to focus on what I think are a couple of very important comments um, that you make. And to begin with, let me quote to you a part of what you said in that speech. Uh, you say, quote, plainly what is needed is a rapid resurgence of the democracy's military power, economic strength, and cultural self-confidence. Yet it is hard to see any of this being led from Washington, where the administration is focused on correcting perceived racial injustice, even though minorities have never had a fairer go, uh, and combating what it calls a climate emergency. Um, I'll end the quote there, but you go on to elaborate on that point. Um, Tony, to begin with, could you sort of set the scene for us about your, your observations and your concerns about an American-led world order and what that means for Australia's future? There's no doubt, Dan, <coughs> that... Um under the Pax Americana, which has essentially existed since 1945, mm-hmm. uh, the world as a whole has been freer, fairer and richer than ever before. Uh, yes, bad things have happened, but on balance, uh, humanity is in a better position today than ever before. And that's because America and its allies, uh, principally Britain, but including Australia, Uh, have uh, maintained a liberal world order in which other countries can develop uh, peacefully. And uh, this has been an extraordinary blessing to all of us. Uh, Understandably, um, since the uh, forever wars of the Middle East, uh, the American people have been questioning whether they should be uh, spending so much blood and treasure to do things which benefit others more than them. And uh, I made a speech in Washington a couple of years back where I basically said that the legions are coming home and we need to understand that uh, and we need to be prepared to step up ourselves. Now, if anything, the situation has got much more serious uh, since then. We've got uh, the war in Ukraine, which is... um, utterly, totally unprovoked aggression by uh, uh, a dictator with vast ambitions uh, uh, to establish Russia's overlordship of Eastern Europe. And we've got uh, China, uh, which for several decades we thought was uh, pursuing a more liberal course, now very obviously putting the period of hide and bide behind it and very belligerently indeed Uh, asserting its claims to, in the first instance, dominate the region and ultimately uh, the wider world. And Taiwan is the key flashpoint. It's absolutely the key flashpoint. Uh, Xi Jinping, the new emperor in Beijing, has said time and time again that it is the historic mission of the Communist Party uh, to take Taiwan uh, by force if necessary. Um, there's obviously quite a bit of history there uh, and the whole uh, uh, Shang Shai-shek era in Taiwan uh, complicates it a bit. But uh, the the fact is that uh, for the best part of 40 years, Taiwan has been a liberal, pluralist democracy of 23 million people and there is no way on God's earth uh, that those people should be made uh, to to subject themselves Uh, to the brutality 
of the Beijing regime. And yet, unless uh, the democracies, uh, Taiwan's fellow democracies, can raise the cost to Beijing uh, of any attempt to take Taiwan, I think it's almost inevitable that an attempt will be made. Now, uh, we don't know how the attempt might be made, uh, whether it would be by an economic squeeze, uh, perhaps leading to a physical blockade, uh, whether it might be by uh, a cross-straits invasion, D-Day style, or whether it might be, as Senator Jim Molan, the former general, has speculated recently, uh, a Pearl Harbor-style sneak attack on American forces in the Western Pacific, rendering them effectively inoperable uh, and exposing all of America's allies, uh, Japan, South Korea and indeed Australia, uh, to uh, uh, very, very difficult threats from uh, China uh, to become uh, uh, tributaries or else face uh, uh, an, unequal, an unequal war. Uh, who knows? But I think we can be absolutely certain as long as Xi Jinping uh, or one of his fellow commissars are in charge in Beijing, that there will be an attempt to take Taiwan by force. Now, when I was in Taiwan last year, the Taiwanese thought um, it was a couple of years away. Mm. Uh, the Americans uh, seem to think that it won't be until about 2027 uh, that the Chinese will be sufficiently confident of their amphibious assault capability and their anti-submarine warfare capability to risk uh, an attack on, on Taiwan. But 2027 is five years away, five years away. And if a conflict breaks out, uh, you come to the conflict with what you've got. Mm. Now, at the moment, uh, Australia's military forces are pitifully inadequate uh, for any sustained conflict other than the sort of minor expeditionary wars that we have been engaged in in the Middle East over the, sporadically over the last couple of decades. Um, it, 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 it really is um, way beyond time uh, for a serious increase in Australia's independent military power uh, and much more substantial cooperation between the democracies of the Indo-Pacific to try to ensure uh, that uh, Taiwan is not subjected uh, to the kind of brutality that Ukraine is currently having to endure. Uh, because while the conflict in Ukraine is incredibly serious and has already led uh, to much disruption, uh, which will do enormous ongoing damage uh, to the cost of living, particularly of people in Western Europe. Um, any attempt by China to take Taiwan by force uh, will convulse, completely convulse the modern world. Uh, uh, trade patterns would be completely and absolutely disrupted. Um, standards of living would crash dramatically. Uh, and of course, uh, that's without a fight, uh, but <laughs> add, add the fight, which I think uh, should be entered into uh, in order to try to protect the well-being uh, of the people, the free people of Taiwan. Um, then you've got uh, uh, the risks of escalation 
and the near certainty of heavy casualties, mm. um, even if the fight can be localised in the way that the Korean War was. So there, there are enormous things that need to be taken into account and there are massive preparations that need to be made. Uh, a, to try to prevent the fight, but B, to ensure that if the fight comes, um, the democracies can win because at the moment it's far from certain. Mm. Well, just to build on a couple of points there that you make, Tony, in your um, speech, what you say, quote, Australia needs to end decades of strategic complacency because leaving the heavy lifting to others is unworthy and unwise, uh, end quote. I'd be interested to get your assessment of what are the major things Australia should be doing in order to prepare ourselves for a fight, whether that's in relation to Taiwan or in some other theatre. For me, there's sort of three headline things. One is developing our own offensive capabilities. The second is having energy independence uh, so we can have our own sovereign industry and manufacturing capabilities to be able to produce things here rather than relying on supply chains. And the third is cultural Mm -hmm. self-confidence, which is a a major issue in terms of a nation whose people don't believe in its own values or Mm -hmm. history are unlikely to bring their best selves to a fight. So for me, those are, I guess, three major components. Um, Be interested in your perspective, Tony. Well, naturally, you're right, Dan. Uh, We do have to be uh, militarily more powerful, uh, economically stronger, uh, and culturally more self-confident. We absolutely need to do all those things. But uh, the immediate problem uh, is the Beijing regime um, eyeing Taiwan and constantly calculating whether they can get away uh, with an attempt to seize that democratic island. And what I think we need to do uh, as a matter of great urgency uh, is, uh, is talk seriously to our partners and allies uh, about various contingencies uh, and what the response might be to them. Uh, one of the things that the Morrison government did very well uh, was complete the recipro- reciprocal access agreement negotiations, which my government had started with Japan, which would enable the basing of Japanese forces in Australia and of Australian forces in Japan. I think we should be talking uh, to the Japanese government about moving some of our submarines and some of our planes to bases in Japan because then they would be in a position uh, to be effective uh, were any adverse developments to occur uh, in the Straits of Taiwan. In all things, uh, we need to emphasise that we seek no conflict with anyone. Um, We want everyone to live in peace. Uh, But while you hope for the best, you've got to prepare for the worst And, and... I think our problem is that we have been, uh, if I may say so, uh, sleepwalking through Lotus Land here. Um, and and while I would be the first to concede uh, that as late as 2015, I had an optimistic benign view of China, uh, the developments since then uh, have made crystal clear the fact that uh, Uh, the Beijing regime has malign intentions towards all its neighbours, but particularly towards Taiwan. Uh, We just have to look at what's happened to the Uyghurs. 
We have to look at what's happened to Hong Kong. We have to look at the increasingly draconian treatment of China's own citizens uh, to see the nature of this regime. And if any further demonstration of its belligerence were needed, it was the response of the uh, Chinese military uh, to the recent visit of Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Now, uh, why shouldn't the Speaker of the US uh, uh, House of Representatives uh, be able to uh, pay a, a courtesy call uh, on Taiwan? What's the problem? Now, uh, the fact that the Beijing regime reacted so hysterically uh, to this uh, perfectly reasonable um, visit uh, should have alerted people uh, right around the world uh, to to uh, the the ominous potential uh, in this area. Mm. I want to ask you a question that might be considered to be pushing the boat out of fraction, but I think it gets to um, you know the seriousness of yeah. of the challenge of China. Do you think there's any circumstances where some kind of preemptive strike on China's military capabilities would be warranted, or that itself would be too provocative? Uh, look, I, I, I think that's a that's a, that's a, 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 a I would not for a second entertain any such thought. As I said, I think that uh, the the posture of the democracies has got to be um, we want peace. Uh, We want um, everyone uh, to live uh, as best they can by their own standards uh, without threat. Uh, without oppression. Um, We want uh, every government over time to become more decent and more liberal, but we accept that every country will do its own thing. Mm. The important thing is that no one country uh, tries to pressure another. And in the case of China and Taiwan, you've got uh, a democracy of 23 million people, uh, which is now being bullied on a daily basis by an autocracy of 1.4 billion. Mm. Uh, There was a quote I saw today, and I'm trying to remember it, uh, from Edmund Burke, something like this, when bad men combine, the good must associate, uh, else they fall, else they fall, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Mm. Now, when uh, when the people of Taiwan are subject uh, to the kind of uh, bellicose threats that they're getting from Beijing, it's only right and proper that the fellow their fellow democracies should rally to their help. Um, and again, I'm not saying that uh, there should be uh, an explicit change. Uh, to the one China policy. Mm. I'm not even saying there should be an explicit change to the doctrine of strategic ambiguity, Mm -hmm. but I think some signals need to be sent, uh, backed up by uh, actions that show that we're serious. Some signals need to be sent uh, to the Beijing government uh, that Taiwan is not alone. Mm. And I think uh, um, the consideration of basing some Australian military units in Japan uh, would be an important way of us 
doing our bit uh, to send the right signals to Beijing. Mm. I'd like to just ran out our discussion on this issue to get your reflections on the domestic... And that quote, by the way, is from Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, yeah. all right, very good. No, it's a very apt quote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to get your um, assessment of the domestic political nature of this in Australia, you were, as Prime Minister, somebody who had broad-based support throughout a range of communities across our country, whether it's Indian communities, Chinese, people of all different backgrounds. Um, I think your your leadership appealed to them in many different ways. What we've seen in, in reports over the last couple of months is that um, it's been put to um, people like Peter Dutton and other in the Liberals that uh, too much of a if you want to call it aggressive or even just a clear stance on the Chinese Communist Party is off-putting to Australians of Chinese heritage and therefore you might need to augment your your messaging. Now, I find that, um, firstly, I question the premise of that. I'm not sure it's true because when you and I are talking, we're not talking about Chinese citizens. They are victims of the Chinese mm. Communist Party as much as anybody else. We're talking about the regime. But I would just be interested from your perspective, how do you manage what is clearly a, a very challenging dialogue that needs to be had with the Australian people on this matter. Yeah, and, and I think you, you're right to raise that, uh, Dan. Uh, I've tried in everything I've said about the darkening strategic scene uh, to differentiate between the Chinese people and the current Chinese government, and that's why I've talked about Beijing uh, as opposed to China, wherever I can, mm. uh, and the Chinese Communist Party, as opposed to the Chinese people, wherever I can. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we do get uh, into sort of shorthand talking. Uh, we say China uh, when we mean the current Chinese government. And it is understandable that people of Chinese background living in Australia can become slightly apprehensive uh, and feel perhaps uh, um, slightly uh, uh, out of sorts when when they hear this kind of talk. I just want to say that as far as I'm concerned, um, Australia is a nation of migrants. Uh, we always have been. Uh, certainly modern Australia always has been. We always will be and should be. And um, the fact that we've welcomed migrants from the four corners of the earth who have promptly joined Team Australia and made a wonderful life for themselves and indeed a richer and a better life for all of us is greatly to our credit as a nation. And uh, uh, just as I suppose the English and the Irish and the Scots were predominantly uh, the early ones, uh, in more recent times we've had uh, uh, more than a million come from uh, Ch China and um, the Chinese diaspora. Mm. Uh, we've got almost a million who've come recently from India. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had hundreds of thousands from Vietnam and elsewhere. All of these people, and from the Middle East, all of these people um, have have become wonderful Australians. And the last thing any of us want to do uh, is to make any Australian feel like a stranger in his or her own country or unwelcome in the country. But nevertheless, we do have to be clear-eyed uh, about the fact that uh, uh, the current Chinese government um, is on the march, just as uh, uh, the Russian dictator is on the march 
uh, in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, it hasn't come uh, to wide-scale conflict in our part of the world the way it has in Ukraine. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the aggressive intent is clearly there uh, and it needs to be suitably responded to uh, by the democracies. And look, in the long run, um, this isn't just about us. This is about the people of China as much as anything because uh, one day uh, Chinese people should not just be able to look forward to a materially better life, they should be able to look forward to a politically and spiritually and if they choose culturally better life as well. And this is why the Beijing regime uh, finds Taiwan uh, so toxic because Taiwan is living, breathing proof mm. that there is no totalitarian gene in the Chinese DNA. Mm. And that's one of the many reasons why uh, the Beijing government is so keen to take Taiwan as quickly as possible and do at least uh, to, ta to Taiwan what it's currently doing to Hong Kong. It's a great point you make, Tony. And let's just finish on, I just want to finish on one other component of this because this sort of comes back to what you and I talk about a lot which is the importance of values and so many people that have come from China to Australia have done so because they want freedom, family, set up their small businesses and live a, live a peaceful life. They've, they've escaped the Chinese brutality for a country like Australia. I, and I'll you know, put this in my own words and simply saying I think it's uh, a core component of national defence is for the coalition to talk about our values. It's what brings us together as a nation. You yeah. were always very big on Team Australia. Yeah. No matter what your background is, if you're a mm -hmm. permanent Australian citizen, you have a stake in our nation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. our freedom, democracy, egalitarianism, mm -hmm. our way of life is for, for all Australians. And I think sometimes perhaps the coalition and the centre-right have not been comfortable in talking with um, – migrant communities about those values, but I think it would actually bring them on the journey with us and overcome some of these these issues. So I just wanted to re reflect on that. V very fair point. Um, and one of the great contributions of my former parliamentary colleague, Philip Ruddick, mm. uh, to the Liberal Party, particularly in New South Wales, but uh, around Australia, has been to reach out uh, to recent migrant communities and welcome them into the, into the fold. And Certainly, uh, the Liberal Party uh, in New South Wales that I'm very familiar with uh, is much more reflective of the social realities of modern Australia uh, today than it was 20 or 30 years ago when I first went into Parliament. And Philip uh, had, a, had a big hand in that and he deserves uh, uh, all Liberals' gratitude and indeed all Australians' gratitude for that. I've always thought myself that uh, migrant communities uh, should naturally uh, resonate with Liberal Party values because uh, you come to Australia, uh, what are you on about? Invariably, you're on about family, education, getting ahead, uh, and that normally means small business. And yeah. these are very much things that resonate or should resonate uh, with the Liberal Party. So I think that the the Liberal National Coalition should be the natural party uh, for the recent migrant. Uh, but all too often in the past, I think we were a bit standoffish and uh, that's certainly 
must not be true of the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I reckon that's a great topic for a future conversation because there's a lot to, to talk about there. But um, for today, we'll, we'll leave it there. So as always, um, you know, really greatly appreciate your insights and your, your advice and analysis, Tony. So thank you once again. Dan, can I just of course, if I yeah, may, go finish for on, on this one point? Um, if the Americans think uh, that 2027 is the likely time for a Chinese attempt uh, to take Taiwan, uh, that gives us five years uh, to prepare. Now, um, I saw that we're now thinking about uh, possibly getting uh, more air warfare destroyers, but we're still talking about uh, the late 20s or the early 30s. We have got to ramp this up. We really have got to ramp this up uh, because we just cannot assume uh, that a conflict, if it occurs, uh, is going to give us adequate warning uh, to suddenly start doing all the things that should be done now. One of the things that really hit me, Dan, when I was Prime Minister, and as Prime Minister, you've got to think about the substance uh, in a way that as opposition leader, you probably don't have to. I mean, opposition is probably more theatre than substance. Government has got to be more substance than theatre. And and what really hit me, uh, first in the context of the energy debate uh, and second in the context of the defence procurement debate, is that decisions that governments make or fail to make now critically impact on the choices that governments have uh, indeed, the fate the nation has five, 10, 20 years down the track. And so any negligence in terms of our military capacity now uh, could put us in an incredibly perilous position in five or 10 years' time. That's why I think there is an ex- that there should be an extreme urgency uh, about trying to beef up uh, our armed forces' uh, weight, and clout and capacity and the kind of uh, gentle um, over-the-horizon expansion that we've been talking about, nuclear submarines by 2040, uh, an extra 10,000, uh, 20,000 uh, military personnel uh, within two decades, we have got to have, everything has got to be accelerated uh, massively. No, thanks, Tony. I think the, the ramping it up, I'd like to talk to you about maybe next time what ramping it up means and, and to you what it might look like because I think that's a, a very important topic and um, there, there are a few other voices out there making this case. So, Tony, uh, thank you once again. Thank you, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.